I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him, who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him, who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be in the house with you today. We are in our second week of our sermon series, and we're working through the letters of John. And throughout this series, we're going to be looking at and learning about our relationship with God. We're going to be learning about the challenges that our relationship with God can face, and also ways that we can strengthen our relationship with God and keep it strong throughout our life. John wrote the first letter with a very specific goal in mind, that every believer might learn how to enjoy their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now John, he had known Jesus personally. He was a close friend of his when Jesus was walking um, the dusty roads of Galilee and Israel on earth. And John knew that everyone can have this same kind of joyful friendship with Jesus, just like the disciples had. Last week, we learned that the Apostle John, um, what he had to say about sin and righteousness and about light and darkness. We learned that sin is a, a barrier that blocks our relationship with God, sometimes from even starting or often from reaching its full potential. We saw how confessing sin and accepting the forgiveness that God made possible by Christ's atoning sacrifice for us on the cross will break down those barriers, the ones that, that keep us separated from a relationship with God. And then, when those barriers are gone, the light of Jesus Christ can come streaming in and illuminate our lives and chase away all the darkness of sin. In today's passage from 1 John, we're going to see how Christians are connected together like a family and how we are called to live differently than the rest of the world. But that just like family members can live side by side without ever really having fellowship with each other, so can believers. Today we're going to look at the family that we have together as followers of Jesus. All believers across time and space are our brothers and sisters. And John has a lot to teach us about how to do family right. John describes believers of different maturity levels as, as parts of one family. But even before addressing believers of various maturity levels in the faith, 
he uses one of the most basic, most foundational family relationships of all. He says that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the children of God who by the death, burial, and resurrection of his son has bought, brought people of all kinds together in one big family. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. Let's look at the first part of today's passage, starting 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In this section of today's passage, John is addressing Christians of all age levels and of all maturity levels in the faith. John talks to two groups of people, the young men and the fathers. Now, the young men represent growing Christians. They've, they've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. They've overcome Satan, and they are learning to overcome the temptations and go on to further victories in their faith. And the fathers represent disciple-making, mature believers. They are mature in their faith. They have a long-standing relationship with Jesus. And so at this stage, they're able to, to pour into others. They can, they can teach younger Christians how to grow in their faith by, by showing and sharing with them some of the experiences that they have had by teaching them what they have learned over the years and, and, and passing on some of the timeless methods of growing in our faith. You know, the Christian journey has always been one of journeying through stages of development. And here at Anderson Hills, we recognize and we teach in our spiritual growth track that there are three movements along this spiritual continuum. Now, at the very beginning, a man or a woman who is exploring Christ is one who's interested in Christ, but they have yet to make an actual commitment to Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're asking questions. They're, they're seeking answers. They're kind of on the outside periphery looking in, if you will. In good Wesleyan theology, we might say that they have the Holy Spirit's prevenient grace at work in them, in their life, inviting them, wooing them into making a commitment to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And once a person does make a commitment to Christ, they move into that next phase of spiritual development, growing in Christ. Now there's a wide variety of people that, that fit into this stage, and it in most churches, churches it's the largest stage where the majority of people find themselves people here have a personal relationship with christ and they're beginning to learn just what that means 
They're learning what it takes to develop that relationship. They agree with core Christian beliefs, and they're getting comfortable with spiritual practices. But although they are growing, much of their spiritual life still revolves around them. How do I get my needs met? How do I find answers to my desires, my interests? And so there remains in this stage still some rebellion, still some self-centeredness. And it's often that kind, at this stage that Christians can become kind of dissatisfied with those areas of their life that are still not conforming to the image of Christ. And so they start to surrender more and more of their life to Jesus. And this moves a believer to the next phase, which is called close to Christ. And it is in this stage, as Jesus begins to do his healing work in our lives, that, that someone in this um, stage, that their faith starts to become deeply personal. It becomes a significant force that is relevant in their life every waking moment. Faith is no longer defined by something that just happens once or twice a week when this person is in the church building. These people publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus as their Lord. And they have a high degree of ownership for their spiritual journey. You might call them spiritual self-feeders. They learn how to grow in their faith without a lot of help from others. They're starting to understand that, that God has called them to give to the body of Christ um, uh, more than just simply to take. You might hear a person in this stage say, I can't wait to go on that mission trip to Mexico next fall. Or, you know, there are several people in my life that I'm witnessing to, that I'm sharing my faith with, and I hope that I can invite them to church or that they'll join my small group soon. Now, this choice to surrender to Christ is not just a, a one-time event, is it? It's an ongoing process that becomes a part of our, of our daily lifestyle. It's a daily surrender to Jesus. Jesus, I want more of you today. I surrender more of who I am to you. Well, there's one more stage and stop in the journey from here. And that can be described as a person who is Christ-centered. The word here, submission, is very appropriate for a person in this stage. This person has been undeniably transformed. They are the most active hands and feet of Jesus on this planet. They've relinquished their secular values and their worldly aspirations, and they've yielded control to Christ. And it is Christ who controls all of their behavior. They are reproducing faith in other people. They're making disciples. And so, in many ways, the term parent fits a, a person in this stage rather well because a parent understands what unconditional love is all about and this person has developed a profound love of God and a profound love of others now I want you to know that there is no place on this journey of faith where you are that you are not supposed to be right now there isn't one phase that's necessarily better than another. You're right where you are meant to be at this moment in time. And at the same time, there is no place on your journey of faith where you should be content to stay or where God does not want to see you grow even more into the maturity of faith in Christ. You see, as Christians mature in their faith, 
they become less and less interested in or swayed by their own selfish or sinful desires. And they become more and more interested in loving and pleasing God in everything that they do. Or as John might phrase it in our passage for today, mature Christians are the ones who should be best at modeling for younger Christians what a lack of love for the world looks like. Let's pick back up in our passage in verse 15. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now we should probably start by defining what John means and what he does not mean when he talks about the world. Because usually a discussion of this either degenerates really quickly into a belief that all matter or the physical world is bad and that the spirit or the spiritual world is good, or else we quickly make a list of all the forbidden activities that there are for us and we set up our, for ourselves just a new set of legalism. Now there were people in John's day who taught that the physical world is evil and that the spiritual world is good. This philosophy is called cosmic dualism. You might want to work that phrase into conversation with a friend this week and really make yourself look theologically brilliant. But my friends, cosmic dualism is not the Judeo-Christian understanding of creation. We know that God created everything that there is. And in Genesis 1, God calls the creation good. Now, John is talking about moral dualism, which is the understanding that there are moral and immoral things in this world. When John talks about the world, he is talking about a system of belief that leaves God out of the equation. Worldliness refers to the exclusion of God and the things of God. Now there are some people who think that worldliness is limited to outward behavior. You know, the, the people that we hang around with, the establishments, we, the establishments we like to frequent, the things we like to do. But worldliness is also internal because it begins in the heart. It has to do with our attitudes as well as our actions. I mean, it is possible to give the impression of avoiding worldly pleasures while still harboring worldly attitudes in our heart. But it is also possible, like Jesus, to love sinners and spend time with them while at the same time maintaining a commitment to the values of God's kingdom. So let's get practical for a minute. How do you know when you are loving the world? Well, there are some questions that we can ask ourselves, I think. The first one is the simplest one. Is it sin? I mean, that's an easy one, right? There are some things that God says are sin, and they're 
clear in Scripture. And so if we know that something is sin and God is against sin, then it's of this world and we should avoid it. Number two, you might ask yourself, is this thing a big distraction of my time or other resources from the things of God? And if there's something that distracts you from God, it's probably of the world. But there are some necessary distractions in the world, but ultimately they can point us to God, and they're not worldly distractions. For example, you may have a job now, or if you're retired at one point, you probably did have a job. And jobs can take up a lot of time, can't they? But jobs are necessary to provide for our families, which our families are a gift from God. And scripture is very clear that if we do whatever we do as un, un, unto the Lord, then it's glorifying to God. And so our jobs can actually be a way of worshiping God, and they won't be a distraction that leads us away from God. Number three, ask yourself this question, does this draw me closer to God? The Westminster Catechism says that our chief end and purpose as human beings is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I mean, think about it this way. If, you're, if you want to go to heaven, but you have no interest in heavenly things or divine things, do you really want to spend an eternity with God? Or is your view of heaven just a, a way better version of earth than you have right here? I mean, heaven isn't just an endless golf course with uh, an infinity of holes that you can play on a perfect weather day. And it's not an endless all-you-can-eat buffet where you never pack any pounds on your gut or on your hips, although that sounds pretty good. But the Bible describes heaven as a place that is filled with the glory of God. And that is our goal. That's how we want to spend eternity um, if we're going to be uh, thinking in heavenly things. Number four, you can ask yourself this question, what do I sense the Spirit saying? You should pay attention to the promptings and the prodding of the Holy Spirit in your life. That can point you to worldly things um, or away from those worldly things. Number five, do I have to hide part of it or all of it? This again is a pretty easy one. If you have to hide all or part of what you're doing, it's not good. The TV shows you watch, the books you read, the, how many glasses of wine you have after dinner, the music you listen to, that list can go on and on. Does it move you away from God or closer to God? Do you have to hide all of it or part of it? And lastly, do I have to spend a lot of time justifying it? I mean, if you have to justify what you're doing or how you're spending your time, it's probably loving the world and not loving God. But knowing that the world, with all of its evil desires and pleasures, um, are passing away, can give us courage that will help us control our greedy, self-indulgent, sinful behaviors and attitudes. And it can also give us the strength to continue to seek to do God's will completely. Picking back up in verse 18, John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. John uses that word Antichrist three times in these six short verses. And he uses that term to refer to people who are either opposed to Christ or attempting to be in the place of Christ. They are false teachers who attempt to lure people away from Jesus. And John is talking here about people who came from within the church, but who wanted to draw others away from their intimacy with God. John was warning the believers about people who wanted to distract them away from their focus on God. Now you have to remember, by the time 1 John was written, the church was in about its third uh, generation of Christianity. And so there were some false versions of Christianity that were popping up. And so they needed an expert to determine what was real and what was false. And John was a seasoned elder. He'd known Jesus personally. And so John keeps pointing the believers back to the truth in this letter. And the good news is that John instructed the believers that there was no reason no reason that they should fear the Antichrist. No, John tells the believers that they are part of God's family, that they have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to guide believers into all truth. And still another job of the Holy Spirit is to lead us into the fullness of Christ, the second half of the gospel, Christian perfection, entire sanctification. In just a few moments, as we welcome new members into our church family, and as we baptize new members, you will hear us call upon and invoke the Holy Spirit to work in each person's life for these exact same reasons. John says, don't be deceived by people who, tr who try to take you off track. Keep your eyes on Jesus. For a Christian, Jesus is not at the top of our priority list. He's the center of our life. Because faith isn't centered around a concept or a place. It is centered around a person. And that person's name is Jesus. And he is our Lord. Picking up in verse 24. John says, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. John was telling the believers to hold on to the truth of the gospel 
that they had heard from the beginning. Hold on to the rock as the choir sang for us so poignantly just a little bit ago. You see, these, these Christians knew the truth of the faith that is found in scriptures, but some imposters were trying to lead them astray. I'm not talking about minor little variances between Christians, but fundamental differences on basic core Orthodox Christian beliefs. Beliefs like the Bible is the word of God, that God has revealed himself in the, as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Jesus is God incarnate, come down from heaven to earth. That he was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. And he rose from the dead. These bedrock, creedal beliefs, which we gave voice to just a little earlier in the service as we affirmed our faith in the Apostles' Creed. John is saying that if the believers hang on to these fundamental truths of the gospel, then they will abide in the Father and in the Son. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. In Jesus' last teaching to the disciples before he was betrayed, he said this in John 14. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. My friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, abide in Jesus. Stay close to him. Draw even closer to him. Spend time with him. Because the way to grow in any relationship is by sharing time together. So how are you doing in spending time with the Lord every day? How is your prayer life? How is your public and private life of worship? How is it going as you open God's word a little bit every day? Are you in a life group or a band so that you can sharpen your faith together with your brothers and sisters in Christ? All of these habits will help you grow in your relationship with Jesus and with others. And that is the end that we seek. And here at Anderson Hills, we're all about helping each person take their first step and their next step in a lifelong maturing faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me now? Holy One, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day. We thank you, O oh God, that you have called us into relationship in the family of Jesus Christ. We thank you, O oh God, that you have given us your word, that you have given us the uh, holy scriptures and, and worship and prayer and, and so many ways that we can grow in our faith in you. We ask, O oh God, that uh, you would accomplish in us far more than we can ask or imagine that each and every day of our life we would seek to grow deeper um, in our relationship with you and closer to you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, pour out your blessings upon your children, uh, your sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, and draw us on to Christian perfection. We pray through Christ Jesus our Lord and all God's children said, Amen.